good people? How we doing? I just want to share a few messages with you really quick if you have the time. Um, you know, I was having a conversation with our staff this past week and, you know, we really feel like we haven't given you enough actionable items where our audience can go out there and make a difference in someone's life today. You know, right now is the time to do it when we're all at home um, and people are struggling out there. So um, the two groups that need help in this on these two messages are uh, patients that are going to be left without a, a hospital bed when we reach the top of the curve come mid-May uh, and the homeless. So uh, the first one is from uh, SVN. It's a shared value, one of the largest actually shared value commercial real estate firms in the United States. Um, and what they're doing is they've, they've launched a campaign called hashtag CRE to save lives. So what this is all about is uh, according to a Harvard Business Review study, there's like 924,000 hospital beds right now in the United States available. Um, and by mid-May, projections are showing there are going to be three to four million people that will have COVID-19 and will need to either be in a hospital bed or need um, to be tested. So how do we do that, right? So uh, what SVN has, has put together is uh, they have a ton of vacant spaces in a database of all these vacant spaces. Really, the message today is for medical workers, uh, for government officials. If you know somebody uh, who is in that position to make this decision, you know, please t tell them about this uh, campaign. Drive them to real-leaders.com slash solutions, uh, where they can go on, basically just contact, say, hey, I need this space. Uh, all the listings are close to hospitals. They're either drive-through facilities that they can transform into testing facilities, uh, or just vacant spaces of over a thousand square feet uh, where we can you know, set people up and uh, make sure that the heroes of COVID-19, all the medical workers right now, have a space to treat people. Uh, so it's going to be a, a group effort, a team effort, and the only way through this is together. So uh, real quick, here's a message uh, from the CEO of SVN. My name is Kevin Majacomo, CEO of SVN, one of the largest commercial real estate advisory firms in the US, and I nominate the entire organization, all of SVN, specifically Kurt Arthur, Deborah Kwok, Cameron Irons, Brent Miller, and Brian Edmonds to list their properties on real-leaders.com forward slash solutions for medical workers and locally elected government officials to collaborate for immediate access to vacant spaces for the two million patients who won't be able to be treated in a hospital when re we reach the top of the curve in mid-May. So if you are a medical professional or someone who knows someone who can take advantage of these readily available spaces, please share this video or make your own or tag them in the comment section below using hashtag CRE2SaveLives. So please help flatten the curve and join the other agents who have already placed their listings at real-leaders.com forward slash solutions. Let's do this. Let's make an immediate impact and a big difference. Thank you. Again, people, so go to real-leaders.com slash solutions. Uh, or take a video of yourself, tag us, we'll reshare it on LinkedIn, we'll reshare it, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Um, and let's just make sure we get the ball rolling on this to accommodate the 2 million people that uh, might need space in, here in mid-May. We really don't know what's going to happen. So that's one solution. The next one actually comes from our sponsor. And I think this is a, it's a great solution. Um, and, you know, if, if you're a company who's uh, working remotely right now and you want to send them a little little pick-me-up gift great way to help out the homeless um so what is unbelievable it's a direct-to-consumer baked goods company on a mission to donate 1 million meals to those in need by 2022 so how does it work every time you order a box of cookies there's 12 cookies a dozen cookies in a box um, they are going to donate two meals to uh, soup kitchens across america uh, so obviously very difficult time right now for uh the homeless population um, and this is a way we can drive funds for them in a for-profit model 
Um, and also, I'm, I'm just gonna throw this out here as well. Uh, they are delicious cookies. Like, I, even if you're not even about the the effort to help the homeless, or you, you know, if you if you just are a cookie lover, uh, I've got a roommate here. Yeah, I, yes, I have roommates. Yes, so I've got a roommate here who orders at like two boxes of cookies a week, and they come from a nice place, you know, down the street. He told me, he's a hard reviewer, and he told me these cookies are like an 8-7. Another roommate said it was 8-5, another one said it was a 9-1. That's saying something. And, and I'm, I'm not, I'm, I will go on the record, and so will they, to say these are the best cookies that you can have shipped to you in the mail. You just don't, they're, they're big, they're, they're chewy, they're, man, they're just tasty. I wish I had more to eat. Um, but we went through that box fairly fast, as you can imagine. Um, so, uh, best deal today is you're going to get 25% off. Um, you, all you got to do is go to realdashleaders.com uh, slash podcast. It's just the podcast page. There's going to be a picture of a box, the unbelievable box on there. Um, and just click on that box. It'll take you to the website. It'll automatically uh, apply a 25% discount on your on any order. So you can order as many as you want. Uh, for your employees, uh, for your family members or friends uh, during these times. A little pick-me-up gift again. Um, and they're delicious cookies. I promise you, you'll probably order another one after you try them. Uh, so real slash solutions, or you can go to an num- unbelievable website, enter in code ReLeaders, uh, all uppercase. Delicious cookies. Uh, and again, helping out those in need. And the last thing you can do, folks, is just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Well, I've gained, I have really gained a lot from this. Um, this has been the, the philanthropic thing that has changed me the most, I think. One thing I did is I learned the secret to happiness. And the secret to happiness is being grateful for what you have, not ungrateful for what you've lost, or ungrateful for what other people have. Mm. And uh, I have always been uh, practice gratitude, but I'm telling you, when you hear some of the stories, you, you, you just don't realize how good our life is. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that message was from Jim Estel, the CEO of Danby Appliances, who wants to let you all know that you too can unlock the secret to happiness. So how do we learn a mindset of gratitude? How are leaders pivoting their roles during these times? And will the coronavirus change business as we know it? Find out on this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. Enjoy. Okay, here we go. Let's get started here in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Here today, uh, we have Jim Estel, the CEO and owner of Danby Appliances. Jim, thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Wonderful. Jim, you know, there's a lot we're going to be able to cover today. Uh, one of the in, the areas of focus, I guess, for our audience today um, will be around uh, your involvement with the Syrian uh, refugees, what you're doing now with uh, the impact of COVID-19, how you're stepping up in being a leader. But first off, Jim, would you mind just giving our audience a, a basic brief background uh, about your your business experience? Sure. So I'm, I'm your basic entrepreneur. I started a business uh, when I was in university from the trunk of my car and I grew it to a couple billion in sales. I sold it and then I uh, was retired for five years. Uh, I moved to New York and then my dad got sick. So I moved back to Canada, which is, I'm Canadian. That's where I was from. And uh, I sat on the board of this company, Danby Appliances, and the uh, uh, CEO resigned. And I said, oh, I can go in and run Danby Appliances. And uh, so that's what I do today. Oh, and, and along the way, I'd invested in and advised and mentored a number of companies. And one of those was uh, BlackBerry. So I was one of the founding directors of BlackBerry. And as far as YPO goes, I actually was one of the co-founders of the uh, Western Ontario chapter of YPO as well. So Jim, you've done a lot. It's pretty incredible. It's, I, I'm actually interested about this entrepreneurial story though. Maybe go into depth a little bit more about how you started this first company. 
well, I, I was an engineer and I wanted to design circuit boards. And I, I needed a computer. I got a better deal if I bought two of them. So I bought two and I sold one and someone else wanted a computer. So I bought another two computers and someone wanted a printer and someone wanted some software and memory and disk drive. So next thing you know, I'm buying and selling computer hardware, software and peripherals. And I was doing that. And I got to the size where I didn't have enough space. I was probably in maybe a 3000 square foot building and I had my engineering staff doing custom circuit board design and I had my sales thing. So I split the engineering company into a different company and sold half of it to the engineers. And that business is still in business today. That company is Connect Tech. And I took my distribution business and that company became Cynix, which is, uh, it's a distributor. They're, they do probably 10 billion in sales now and they're, uh, selling to people like Best Buy, they're a silent middleman selling all the brands that you would know, like Microsoft and Apple and uh, HP and Lexmark and uh, just Epson, you name it, all the brands, uh, they're just the, the distributor, wholesaler. Well, it's, it's, you know, it seems like you've been solving a lot of problems, you know, since a young age. Uh, what's like, is there an, a, an interest that you have of just, I don't know, just solving problems and making things better. What really drives you to make these changes? Well, I, a lot of it's impatience. So I, when I see things happening, I can't just not do anything. And usually people don't do things fast enough. So I said, oh, well, just let me do it. So that's why I tend to jump in and uh, try to solve the world problems. Well, I'm really excited you're working with Danby right now. I've got a nice little Danby mini fridge that you can't really see. Maybe if we're, you you know, come over to my house, we can, you know, share a few items that are in there. I'm, I'm oh, sure perfect. they're cold. I'm sure they're very cold. They're great, great appliances. Uh, but Jim, like, like I mentioned in this introduction, uh, what fascinated me and why, why you, we were connected to you in the first place is your involvement uh, with employing Syrian refugees. Now, for folks out there listening to this for the first time who are unaware about the Syrian uh, refugee crisis, in 2011, the civil war happened. They had about 26 million people living in Syria at the time. And now I think the United Nations estimates there's around 13.2 million displaced from their homes, both internally and that have also kind of flushed over to neighboring countries uh, like Turkey. So they're living in, uh, you know, pop-up shop homes. They've lost their jobs, family identity. Some of the things I want to go into today, but Jim, it's 2011. What were you doing at this time? And what intrigued you most about this, uh, this crisis? Well, I didn't really get involved with the Syrian refugee crisis until they became refugees. To be a refugee, they have to be out of the country. So it's mm, okay. a mass exodus. So around 2015, there was a massive, uh, you saw the, the television coverage of people taking the rubber dinghies and capsizing and children washing up dead on the beaches and stuff like that. So I, I thought, well, why don't, you know, why doesn't someone do something and they weren't doing it fast enough? And Canada has a private sponsorship program. So in Canada, you're allowed to sponsor refugees. So, and I'm, I'm pretty philanthropic, so I donate quite a bit of money. And uh, so I just said, oh, here's my, here's my budget. Okay, I've got this much money. How many refugees can I sponsor? So, oh, I, I can sponsor 50 refugee families. So I sponsored, went to say I'd sponsor 50 refugee families. And everyone said, wow, that's a big deal. So I got tons of press coverage and stuff like that. And I kind of became the poster child of refugee sponsorship. So since then, I've gone on to sponsor well over 100 families and I have over 500 refugees that I've sponsored over from that be from 2015 to the present. And even to this day, uh, we have uh, refugees arriving every month and we settle them in in our my community, Guelph. Um, and it's a whole process. So everyone always says it's the leader that takes the credit. I get the credit, but I don't do the work. It's organized like a business. So I have a director of housing and a director of education, a director of health, a director of mentorship. Every family that comes in gets uh, four or five mentor families and the mentor families have checklists to set up a bank account, to get the kids tested and ESL tested, to get register them in school, to arrange an apartment or a, or a house, to hmm. outfit it with uh, furniture and cutlery, to uh, get them a bus pass, to ride the bus. So it's all the stuff that you need. If you settled in a foreign country, what do you need? And then, of course, I do do, I did also uh, employ some of them. And we did a program here, which we call Ease into Canada, which is focused around learning English. So we have English 
teachers that come in and teach English classes. Um, I would offer any refugee a job for 90 days. And uh, then we do resume writing and we have assigned a job coach. So um, it's a way you could get someone who was not necessarily going to be a factory worker to come and learn essentially the culture and uh, polish, get their English a little bit better. And, uh, and then we help them try to move on and end up with a, another better job that's more suited to what they and who they are. So Jim, you know, what's fascinating when, when we get people such as yourself on the show, it's, it's just, it's interesting to me, like why, why incorporate this into your business? And have you seen any positive benefits that have come from this? And as well, you mentioned this is a, a philanthropic move. Do you consider this philanthropy or do you consider this a, you know, like a socially responsible business model? Oh, so when I first brought in the refugees, I was not planning on employing any of them. Mm. And the reason I wasn't going to employ anyone, I didn't want people to think I was doing it to uh, employ slave labor in my factories. But what happens, I bring people in and I refer them to my other YPO buddies and say, oh, you know, here, I've got this new refugee here. And it often wouldn't work because they weren't quite job ready. Mm. Among other things, in the first 90 days, you're in a new country. You actually miss quite a bit of work because you have to go get a medical and you probably haven't been to a dentist in five years and you have to register the kids in school and you can't get a bus pass on the weekend because that's government run and you have to set up a bank account. And so you have all of these appointments that happen. And and if if I sent you an employee and all of a sudden they're missing a bunch of work for registering their kids in school. And, and then there's also some cultural things that uh, are, are different. I mean, one of the obvious ones is uh, I, I think with almost every person, we had to have a little conversation that when your shift starts at eight, that means you're here at eight and 845 is not eight. Eight o'clock is eight o'clock. And uh, because in, in Syria, the time clock was just a little different. Uh, I, one of the guys started a, a sock store in the mall downtown and the mall owner calls me and says, you know, 10 o'clock, you know, 1030 in the morning, the mall opens at 10, they haven't opened the store. I said to him, why didn't you open the store? Oh, no one ever comes in uh, that early. We just, because it's just a a more casual approach to uh, time than what we have in North America. So those are the little cultural things. And some of them are are bigger. Actually, the same sock store, it's uh, like, uh, oh, you're going there and he's putting price tags on the socks, $20 a pair. And I said, you know, you're not going to sell them for 20. Oh yeah, they can top me down to $4. Well, yeah. <laughs> we in Canada, if it says twenty dollars. I think that's what price. I, I I don't talk down the price. Exactly. Well, it's it's got to be eye opening for you to experience people from different cultures. I mean, how? I mean, I'm sure you've impacted these people, but how have these people impacted you? Well, I, I've gained. I have really gained a lot from this. Um, this has been the the philanthropic thing that has changed me the most. I think. One thing I did is I learned the secret to happiness and the secret to happiness is being grateful for what you have, not ungrateful for what you've lost or ungrateful for what other people have. Mm. And, uh, I have always been uh, practice gratitude, but I'm telling you when you hear some of the stories, you, you, you just don't realize how good our life is. Like, um, you, you are not going to have to worry to go home and your house is bombed and you're not going to work, get the call right now that you're, your brother just got killed. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I had stories of people who ran their life pretty well. Oh yeah. I was a teacher. I talked away. I bought 12 apartment buildings. That's what I was going to retire on. Oh yeah. And, and then they aren't any longer. And, Oh, so do you get any money for, Oh no, I, I, I have my suitcase. That's what I have. Well, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, no, my my best friend's parents are refugees as well. Um, and they're just normal people, obviously. Uh, but yeah, they have way different norms and different experiences. And the stories that they tell me from the Middle East are crazy. I mean, we've had some few, uh, a few companies come on from MENA, from the uh, Middle yeah. East, Northern Africa. Uh, but it's interesting when you say that about the, the jobs and like the expectations, because um there's a, like the lowest level employment in the world is like over there. And the, I think that you have a lower risk or sorry, a lower probability of getting a job if you have a college degree versus a high school, high school degree there. So it's very, it's, it's just a lot different over there. I'm, I'm sure I've never been. Oh. I, have you been over there? 
Uh, no, actually, I've never been to never been. Uh, Syria. I've, I've been to Morocco a couple of times, but I have not spent much time in the Middle East. But uh, the, well, the other thing is they're they're not as safety conscious as we are in North America. Like we we have we're, we have a factory, so you have to wear steel toe shoes. Or, or oh, okay. The guy shows up in flip flops. You can't have flip flops in the factory. Oh, don't worry about. It. I cut my toe off. It's my problem. Don't don't you worry about it. Yeah. Well, in Canada, no, I'll end up going to like. jail if you if you cut your toe off here. Exactly. So, well, you were just mentioning, you know, you found this, the key to happiness, you know, being gracious yeah. and, gr- and showing gratitude. You know, how has something like that uh, influenced your business decisions, uh, your overall happiness, your approach to the the day to day? I mean, uh, I realized that I can be happy with very little and it's the little things that can make me happy. One of the things I've always said is health trumps wealth. Mm. And, uh, so I'm a health guy. I want to be healthy, but, uh, it, in life, it's all about being grateful and, uh, and it's all about the little things. So now we're in a time when another crisis has hit, uh, the, uh, COVID-19, the disease caused from the coronavirus has stifled, uh, business, the economy slowed things down a little bit, uh, forced many people to start working remotely, not controlling people over, um, you know, a direct personal connection. What have you done? What has Danby appliances done to, um, uh, adjust to this crisis? Well, we've done the same thing as other companies, the social distancing, we've moved uh, equipment further apart. We, you know, separate people more on the lines. All, mostly all the office staff are really working at home. Um, and so that's definitely uh, different. Uh, but the problem is we make physical things. And when you have physical things, you can't exactly be a forklift driver at home because you need to move some goods, right? Um, the other thing we did is we redeployed our whole engineering and design team to design a ventilator because there's a massive shortage of ventilators right now. And we're redoing one of our uh, assembly lines to make ventilators. And we're trying to solve that problem and we might be unsuccessful and we don't make medical equipment. So this Mm. is not what we do. And we're uh, collaborating with a lot of other uh, companies, a lot of YPOers. uh, And I don't care whether we actually make them. I don't care whether it's our design. I don't care. Um, I just think that I don't want a situation to happen in North America like has happened in Italy where people are dying in the gurney in the hall because they don't have a ventilator. And what we're being told by the medical experts is this is going to be a problem if we don't get them. So I'm, I feel that we're racing against time to, uh, to make this happen. And at the end of the day, it could be all, it could, it could be nothing. By the time this is aired, you'll probably know more about what uh, what what happened. But I liken it to uh, put a bunch of sandbags out pe- around my house, thinking it might be a flood, and then there's no flood. Well, I'm not that much further behind that I got a bunch of sandbags out. But uh, if there is a flood, I'm a lot better off if I've got my sandbags out than not. Jim, that's an interesting point. You know, in uh, business school, they don't prepare you for situations like this. They don't say, go do something that go, go into a different industry that you've never been in before, uh, where you might lose some money on, uh, to you, why do something like this? And are you worried about losing uh, money in something like this? Well, of course, it's got, of course it costs a lot of money. It costs money. Absolutely. But, uh, it's, it's another save the world thing. So I'm trying to save the world. And, uh, um, it's a race and real lives are at stake. If we do this right, we can save people. And if we do it wrong, we, we won't save people. And one of the other things I've always said, I don't want to die and say, I stood by and did nothing. And I feel that our government is not doing enough. Our government is not. And, and many other companies are standing by and saying, well, wait a minute, I need to get the order. Oh, I need to. And I'm just saying, no, no, we're just building these things. And if I may, we may end up giving them to the hospitals. It, 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 it it's not the other way around where uh, if I was doing it for profit with uh, selling bar fridges or freezers, I would do it differently where I say, okay, I've got an order for a hundred thousand pieces. I'll build a hundred thousand pieces. It's not like I would say, oh yeah, I just go madly and build a whole bunch. And maybe at the end of the day, I have to, they could end up getting thrown in the dumpster or they could end up getting uh, given away. But this could be, this could be life and death. This could, and this I believe will mark our generation. We will be a generation of germophobes 
business will change after this. I think we can say to our grandchildren, when I was growing up, we used to shake hands with people. What's shaking hands? It's like, uh, I think it's going to be a little different. Man, that's that's some big thinking right there. Yeah, the guest we had on the show yesterday called this the Great Reset. It's a great time for business leaders to think forward and think about how they can change things from the day to day. Um, Now, you just mentioned a little tidbit in there. You said uh, public servants aren't really doing enough. Do you feel like the business community uh, who are a group of private servants uh, have an obligation to step up in a time like this? Well, I actually believe that private business can lead way better than government can lead. So I believe that businesses can solve a lot because we know how to organize. I mean, even my refugee project, I had 800 volunteers. I say to people, well, if you have 800 employees, you can run a company, you can run 800 volunteers. It's the same thing. It's no different, but we're way better equipped to do that because you know who was looking after the refugees when I was bringing them in? Mostly churches, synagogues. Like, and and they are not, they just don't know how to scale. They don't know how to do things en masse and uh, that uh, a normal business person does. And the same thing is true of these ventilators. Like uh, ventilators, oh, we, we need to get FDA approval. Oh, yeah, that's going to take two years. It's not taking me two years. You're getting the problems in two weeks. Mm. We're going to get this done. It's not, uh, I don't take no for an answer. They're going to say, hey, wait a minute, you're not... Uh, medically certified yeah you're right i'm not uh, we're gonna figure out how to get it done right exactly and, and that's what we're finding a lot with these business communities they're intentionally taking on these problems to scale the funding to scale the impact and it's all the same thing now have you found any i don't know any remedies any secrets any uh similarities between some of the business partners in your communities who are also taking on these initiatives Oh, I found a lot of uh, a lot of helpful businesses that are willing to help. Uh, one of my things I learned from doing my refugee project was I ask. And usually if you ask, people will help. And if they don't help, that's fine. You, you can always drive on. But I think people are inspired when I tell them I'm going to do it and uh, I'm doing my part. Then they kind of want to, they just need the push to do their part. Matter of fact, the companies I'm working with are way better equipped to do this stuff. And I, I use the, like, they're way better. What do we make? We make bar fridges. It's a different, uh, it's a different, uh, animal than a ventilator. Jim, do you see this? I know I've asked a similar question to this, but do you see this as a trade-off? Do you, or do you see, uh, your involvement in the refugee crisis or this now new with COVID-19? Do you think you will see returns from initiatives like these that incorporate more stakeholders? Oh, so I actually believe when you do good, you shouldn't be sitting there saying, okay, this is the returns I'm going to get. However, I will say from the refugee project, particularly, there was some unintended returns. One of them was I got a massive amount of press. So I was on BBC and uh, CBC and CBS and you you name it. I I had television coverage. I didn't measure how much that's worth, but it was worth millions of dollars. Many, Many, many people saw the name Danby and saw my name. That was an unintended consequence. I had no idea I'd get that much press. One other unintended consequence was uh, I inspired a lot of my millennials or a lot of my employees. So a lot of the employees, and I didn't do it to say, oh, I'm going to inspire them, but these people will come in on Sunday because we're solving the world problem where they're not coming in on Sunday because they want to make another 10,000 freezers. I mean, I may think that's inspirational, but they don't think this is inspirational. But when you're doing it, save the world. So those are two positive unintended consequences. Um, one negative unintended consequence is I did get flamed. And, uh, you know, some people think that I'm bringing in terrorists and I fear terrorists just like anybody else. And, you know, th- so there's a little bit of that uh, Islamophobia and a little, uh, uh, you get a little bit of that, but, um, maybe that makes me stronger anyways for people to, uh, speak, you know, t- tell me that I'm, <laughs> that I shouldn't be, uh, be doing it. Can I say? There's no doubt about it. Uh, so Jim, I mean, you've done a lot of work with this crisis in, in Syria. You've done a lot. You're pursuing more efforts with, uh, COVID-19 now. Um, what are the comparisons between the two? Um, I, I mean, one comparison is I didn't think that uh, governments were doing things fast enough and uh, entrepreneurially enough. 
So I'm doing things very entrepreneurially, which is not in the government nature. Um, and uh, that's a similarity. Uh, one difference is, I mean, it's, it was a crisis when I was bringing in the refugees, but I was bringing in the refugees usually from refugee camps or they, they were not in uh, a battlefield. So uh, there wasn't quite the sense of urgency to bring people in. I mean, you weren't living in good conditions, but you weren't dying in the streets. Um, where this COVID race right now is a race. Like we are like, it's, it's going to peak. How high is the peak? When does it peak? Um, I mean, I worry it's not only about the ventilators who can run the, the ventilators and uh, um, you know, it could be very nasty. Yeah. What's going through your head right now for the people that have to be on the day-to-day jobs? Uh, you know, I, I, that's the other thing I do is I tend to solve something that I think I can solve mm. because if I try to solve the whole world, it gets too burdensome. I mean, really what I should do is uh, on the refugee thing, I, sh- I should have gone to Greece and there's a million refugees there. And, you know, and but what I, I that's too big. I should have solved the, the war. That's the biggest issue. I can't solve that. I can. And even though everyone's, oh, you brought in, you, you did a great job. You brought in uh, hundreds of refugees. That's not a very big, that's a tip of the iceberg. I brought in 500 people out of uh, 5 million people that, that have been, that left uh, Syria. Like, it's not even, not even like 0.01%. It's nothing. Yes. Uh, but I guess the, the question is like, what for like the day-to-day workers that are working on manufacturers that need to be in contact with people in your organization, how, like, what is racing through your head about how you're going to solve that problem if this continues? Uh, well, basically we set up uh, a dramatically different hygiene um, than what we had. So one of my larger facilities, we have two lunchrooms. So you're not, if, you know, you're, you're east side or your west side, you're not both. And uh, we even take temperature when people come into the factory. We do the social distancing thing. Um, and we have more uh, hand sanitizer than I've ever seen in my life. Um, we do offer masks, but most people don't choose to wear masks. Got it. I think they're a little hot, a little uncomfortable. You also mentioned that you see this as you know some a philanthropic move. You know, if if I'm going to incorporate something like this, it's not the interest isn't to make money on this. Do you think there can be a marriage between the two, where uh, there you could also have the intention to uh, solve the world's biggest problems while also making more money than you were beforehand? I think in some cases you're absolutely right. Right now on the ventilator project, I I'm not approaching it that way because that way tends to slow it down. Mm-hmm. But I did start a company here called Shipper B. Shipper B is a courier company that saves 73.1% of the greenhouse gas per parcel ship. So Shipper B, if Shipper B is wildly successful, that's a lot of greenhouse gas. We ship a million or 10 million or 100 million parcels, um, saving 73% of the greenhouse gas. And that's a company that has a greater good for, for uh, and can succeed and make money um, at the same time. Now, what about robotics uh, in, in manufacturing? We've been talking about the future of work a little bit. How do you see the involvement of robotics, automation impacting your industry, as well as let's tie this into COVID-19 with being more remote? And you said this is going to have a long lasting impact on people. Where do you see the future of work going for Danby? Well, everything was already heading to robotics. So everything was heading to robotics, but interestingly enough, I actually am not sure that that will accelerate a lot. You could say it would accelerate a lot because you don't have, uh, you know, the human to human contact, but partly what was driving the robotics was uh, um, labor. You couldn't hire people. This COVID crisis means you can hire people. Like if I put a sign out front saying now hiring, uh, unskilled labor, I get 500 applications for one little tiny sign uh, where it was literally two months ago, you'd have to put a big sign. It would have to say signing bonus. And, uh, you know, we pay more than everybody else. And we're the like you had to really um, promote because we had in our community, we had almost full employment, especially at the blue collar level. Not that I classes, but um, that those are the the jobs that uh, 
were the most difficult to fill. And that's, that's the Syrians. What I found is uh, that was one reason why we didn't have much resentment in our community, because they're not actually taking someone's job because nobody wants to be in construction. Nobody wants to work in landscaping. Nobody wants to work in snow removal. Nobody wants to work in factories. Nobody wants to work in the, the auto shop and stuff like that. So uh, a blue collar jobs in Guelph, there's an unlimited, uh, there was an unlimited number that has just changed overnight. And I don't know how soon that's going to come back. It could come back, but it, it might change overnight. I mean, among other things, all the hospitality, you know, the restaurants, the bars, uh, that's a lot of fairly low skilled people that are now thinking, wow, a factory job would be pretty stable. Stable indeed. So like when you, offer them a job during a time of crisis do you feel like they're more loyal to the company and that they'll i guess you'll retain these employees longer yes now now we were only hiring people for 90 days and it was 90 days and out so it's 90 days and do resume writing figure out what job they're better at they could apply for jobs internally so definitely some of them stayed and those that stayed are very very loyal uh absolutely very loyal very hard working um because they felt that they were being uh you know, that I helped them come to, uh, to Canada and, and to some extent save them, right? Jim, uh, you, it seems like you've been dealing with a lot of challenges, a lot of problems throughout your entire life. What's the most difficult decision you've had to make? Uh, well, for me, the most difficult decision is always around people. Mm. Because I tend to like everybody and think the best of everybody, but sometimes it, you just simply can't keep everybody and whatnot. And uh, I mean, this COVID crisis is a perfect example. Uh, Danby has a very high market share in uh, hospitality, in uh, the Marriott and Holiday Inn and the the hotels. Do you think they're going to be ordering a lot more uh, bar fridges? I'm not sure they will. So that part of our business is likely to decline. And that means I'll likely have to make some difficult people decisions. Now, when, when a crisis like this hits, uh, and the, you said the business community has been very helpful in terms of reaching out and doing initiatives like this. But is there something missing? Is there a protocol missing? Is there a, a, a stance to like a unifying mission that's missing? Is there something to you, Jim, that's missing when uh, a crisis like this occurs? Uh, well, what I find in bu- businesses are, are economic beings. Businesses are set up generally to make money for the owners. That's how they're set up. And that tends to be what business owners focus on. Um, They don't tend to focus on social good. Can you change that to say you're going to save the world? It it, it doesn't resonate with most people. Say you're going to make a lot of money. That resonates with people. So your previous idea of saying what's what's a business you can do and and make money while you're saving the world, those are the ones that have the greatest leverage. At the same time, we have a responsibility as business people. Um, to make our, make our world better. And we actually do want it better. You actually don't want all of the wealth accumulated in a very tiny number of people who have to drive around in bulletproof cars with uh, razor wire around our apartments because uh, there's such a divide between uh, the rich and the poor. And we actually do, don't want social unrest. We want social stability. So that provides safety, but not everybody understands that. Well, Jim, do you think you'd be making the same decisions if you were a publicly traded company? Uh, no, I don't think I could. Comp- no, I couldn't. I, I, my previous company, I was public and I was ran that public company after I got sold to one. Um, no, when you're a public company, you have a duty to your shareholders. And so, uh, I mean, when I first started doing the refugee project, I was an employee of Danby. So I was on the board and the CEO resigned. I said, I can come in and run it. Mm. And then I was running it. But it was very awkward. I'd have to. I call the owners. Oh, would you mind if I use uh, Danby trucks? Oh, can I use a piece of Dan? Now they were very philanthropic, and they they allowed me to do it. But then they said they want me to sell the business. I said, great, I'll take the business. Once I own it, it's way better because I can say I'm going to send uh, one of the Danby trucks to pick up uh, a bunch of furniture, and it's my truck. It's my time. It's my issue versus uh, someone else's. And when you're running a public company, it is someone else's company. Now, Jim, what's the message then to other leaders listening to this, either in both private or uh, public company who, uh, you know, you will want to reach out to and and send that message to them during a time like this? Well, uh, one message I would send, which I think would resonate, that is 
often you can get value by doing good. So the, the example of uh, I don't have to advertise for employees anymore because employees want to work here. I don't, and I have a more inspired workforce because people want to work. I got a ton of press for free. Someone else has to pay for uh, advertising. I didn't have to pay for advertising. So these were unintended consequences. And the more good you do in your world and your community, the more um, the more it protects you, so to speak, because you are sometimes going to make a mistake. And if you make a mistake and you're thought of as a big, bad company, hmm. everyone's going to jump all over you on social media and it's going to amplify. Uh, I'm not going to say for sure, but uh, if someone, if I make a mistake and I will make a mistake for sure, people tend to, I, I've even had very sheepishly worded uh, emails. Oh, I'm, I know all the good work you do. I'm really sorry to say I bought this product and it didn't work. Before that, I would get an email saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to sue you and I'm going to uh, put it all over social media, blah, blah, blah. Now they're, they're more gentle. You know, would you, would you mind replacing it? Would you mind? It, it, it's two different ways of, uh, of approaching it. So you're building your, um, your bank account. And that bank account is also big with employees. So in, in the community, like people just think, oh, are you a good uh, corporate citizen? And it does have uh, a value. So is this like a, a risk management tool yeah, it's as a risk, well? Yeah. Okay. It, it's absolutely a risk management. Absolutely. I, I'm afraid if I'd left today and uh, didn't lock the front door, people would look after my place, like who don't work here because they, they would just feel they don't want Danby to have trouble. Right. It's just uh, it, because that's the way they feel because uh, the community I'm in is a very small community population, about 130,000. And so, uh, uh, most everybody here would know who we are. So Jim, what, what do you call this type of leadership? What do you call this type of capitalism? Oh, you know, I, I don't have any really genius word for it. Uh, part of it is, <laughs> it, it's almost a FU capitalism. In that <laughs> I, I, I built my business. I sold my business for a lot of money. I didn't, I don't need to work. I was retired and said, no, I like working. I don't like being the gardener. So then when I come back, I really do what I want to do. I wouldn't even do this interview if I didn't want to do it. Like if I didn't feel like doing it, I would say, no, I'm not doing it. And, um, and that's the same thing when I choose to, to help. It's like, oh, I don't really care if you don't like my refugee project. Like, okay, don't buy my product, right? Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And F you type. So is that, that's a mentality though. That's not a type of business model or a capitalistic state. Is, so are you saying it's the, the uh, a leadership mentality that, that maybe you have that's different now than what you. I think it's, a, that would be a leadership mentality. Um, I guess the leadership style is I have a propensity for action. Mm. So I tend to take action. And in some cases that, yeah, I'm an early mover in a lot of areas. And I'm not only early mover in trying to save the world initiatives. I'm, I'm early mover. I like to think I'm early mover even in business. I mean, Danby Appliances is an old fashioned appliance company making fridges and freezers and wine coolers. And we came in here and I came in here and said, oh, we make big boxes. So let's make a delivery box. So we made, made a box that sits on your front porch that sends you an email or text to say you've got a three pound parcel. So you don't get your parcel stolen from FedEx or UPS. That's just changing the frame of who we are. We make big boxes, not just that we're an appliance company. Mm -hmm. um, and so I tend to be early or a fast uh, entrepreneur. And that comes from being the tech, tech background. So I take the tech background into a smokestack industry and that's what I'm doing here. Jim, uh, a lot of leaders, you know, they're really busy. They've got a, a couple things written on their desk right now. What are the three things, three or four things that are on your desk that you want to take care of in these upcoming weeks? Well, interesting you say, say that because uh, one of my management techniques, I have a to-do list this long, but every day I write down three things that I want to accomplish. Um, we've just started actively working at home. And so my top priority is to make sure that my culture and communication survives because I'm an old time guy that I kind of like walking to the next office and seeing someone. And, and so we're, we're having to um, get good at video and get good at remote and get good at uh, uh, communicating. And I, and that is top of mind to me because if we're not efficient, 
and everybody says, oh yeah, I'm working home. That means uh, it's a staycation. Uh, then our competitors are going to eat our lunch. Um, and right now, because we're in the heat of COVID, I'm thinking, what does a post-COVID world look like? What's post-pandemic look like? Mm. And there will be changes. There may be less hotels where we sell, but there'll be more home offices. So what do you want for a home office? Oh, you probably need a, a Danby bar fridge for a home office. There may be less um, uh, vacations to the Caribbean, in which case, oh, I may need a wine cooler. So there, we And you may do more home entertaining rather than me say, oh, yes, let's go out and get a glass of wine. It's like, come on over and sit on my deck and enjoy a glass of wine because we don't want to go out to the busy uh, bar where uh, we might have uh, communicable diseases. So I think that I, I think a lot about what's post pandemic and what's uh, not D- Danby. We have a Danby health, which is a health rated refrigerator with some uh, antimicrobial uh, handles and stuff like that. I wonder if we'll just be putting those on regular wine coolers at some point because everyone's uh, germ sensitive. Jim, there's a, I work remotely, our our whole staff, we have like a no office policy and it's very, I'm sure like what I can only imagine like what your organization's facing right now when everyone's going home, uh, especially except for the people that need to be in the manufacturing plant that we talked about earlier. Um, But what percentage do you think will be able to work from home after this crisis kind of dies down. So like, where are you right now? How many do you think will be off? And then do you think this is something that where you'll be saving money on uh, reducing environmental impact? And how do you think your culture will change because of this? I, I actually am very hopeful that we will actually become much more a work at home culture. Okay. And uh, um, I think we could be 30 or 40%. Then that also gives me, could give me competitive advantage. I could actually hire someone from a small community that's two hours outside the city where they can have a different lifestyle. They can buy a house for a quarter of a million dollars as opposed to in the city where you pay a half million or a million. And uh, so I think it could change your whole workforce if you get good at it. Same time, there's going to be winners and losers. I think there's going to be the people who worked great in the office. They may not be the ones that work great when they get home. And there are some that are going to be shining stars when they work at home. Um, and I've seen that I have some people, they work at home and I almost have to tell them, look, get off the email. It's 1030 at night. Like go to bed. You should, or, or go, go watch television. Don't, don't. Uh... So some people approach it that way. There is still some people that approaches as a staycation. And, and as I said to my management team, there will be some people who are staycationing for other companies, not mine. Um, but uh, it, it, that's an interesting change of dynamic. And I think that's a permanent change in business and uh, it will be interesting. The environmental savings and the time savings is pretty big. So even if you live in this little tiny community, everybody has a 15 minute commute each way. That's half an hour. Many people have a 45 minute commute each way. That's an hour and a half. Give half the time to the company and take half the time. It's it's a lot of uh, value, right? Interesting times. I'm really excited to kind of see how this all unfolds. Uh, but I already asked you about the three things on your desk today. But when this 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 protocol to be to do social distancing to not go in a setting of more than ten people came into play, what was the message to your management team? Uh, message to the management team is we've got to change our style. Uh, I, I even to this day I send an, a daily email to all my staff with my observations of the world and, uh, and, and tips for working at home, um, you know, be a constant learning organization, working on culture. So mostly the, the fear of the discussion was around our culture and making sure that we can win in a work at home culture. And uh, I was really skeptical. I, I was very worried because I'm old school and uh I, the people I love the most were the ones that were in here at seven in the morning and didn't leave till seven at night. Um, now, uh, I, I'm learning that maybe I don't have to love just those people. I can love other people too. <laughs> That's funny. Well, it's, it's just, it's interesting how things change, but you know, Jim, we've had a, a great conversation today. Learned a lot. There's been a nice comparison between what you've done, you know, in 2015 to kind of what's happening now, uh, your mentality, uh, your leadership mentality to how you approach business, how you approach problems, um, and, and all in between. It's been a, a very healthy discussion, but encompassing all this, bringing this full circle, Jim, the last question I have for you today is what is your definition of a real leader? 
So a real a leader is someone who goes in the right direction. Unlike a manager who goes efficiently in that direction. A leadership is about uh, effectiveness. Management is about efficiency. And often we get the two confused. Leadership is about leading people. Management is about managing people. It, it's difference between pulling and pushing, in my uh, opinion. Jim, well, well put, beautifully put. I think that uh, ties into a lot of the different topics you've mentioned today as well, uh, in terms of direction and doing the right thing and kind of just talking about your entire life. I think it was a, just a real, real cool, inclusive story. So um, appreciate you coming uh, on the Real Ears podcast, Jim. Uh, for Jim is still, I'm Kevin Edwards, asking you to go out there, folks, and always keep it real. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate you. Thanks, Kevin. All right, good people, and thank you for tuning into this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. What did we think today? Let us know. Leave a review. Did we not like it today? Let us know. Leave a review. I hope that you enjoyed it, though, as much as I did. And if you haven't yet subscribed, then please, by all means, hit the subscribe button to receive notifications of this podcast. And for the lucky listeners today... You, my friend, are going to walk away with a free magazine. Go to real-leaders.com slash subscribe and use coupon code podcast25 at checkout to receive your first magazine for free with a year subscription. That's four magazines for the price of three people. Can't get any better than that, can it? Maybe it can. Let me know. We'll send you a free one. Again, coupon code podcast25. That's all lowercase. For the visual learners out there today, if you want to watch this interview on your computer, TV, or tablet with friends and family members, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at Real Leaders Magazine to see all of our interviews with guests harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. Thanks again, folks, for being a Real Leader, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Real Leaders Podcast.